Please be seated. Take with me your Bibles and turn to the little Old Testament book of Jonah. Jonah, the Old Testament prophet. We're going to spend the next four Sundays looking at the book of Jonah together. Jonah is broken down conveniently for us into four chapters, although uh, given more time we would go a little bit more in depth into each of them, but we'll look at a chapter at a time and we'll see the relationship that we share with the characters in the story. We find ourselves reflected in Jonah and in the sailors and in the Ninevites uh, and far too little in God's character here in this story. Now, I should warn you, Jonah is so familiar to many of us. I'm sure that most of you sitting here have read Jonah or at least heard stories about Jonah in your youth. And the problem that sometimes arises with such familiarity to the Scripture texts is that we can glance over them without really diving deeply into them to see what they're really about. In other words, what I mean to say is Jonah is often equated with a book about a great fish, or a book about a stubborn prophet, or a book about a raging storm, or a great wicked city, or repenting cows. Now, all of those things, we'll get there. All of those things are in Jonah. All of those things occur and are present in the book of Jonah, but that is not, none of those things are what Jonah is about. So I want to caution you up front with trying to read Jonah with an eye towards trivia as if we're going to play who knows their Bible story best after this sermon series is over. That tends to be our natural disposition. Oh, what, what size fish was it? And uh, where exactly is Tarshish? And I didn't, Nineveh is a three days journey. That doesn't accord with some historical, those are all tangential to the main thrust of the book of Jonah, which I want us to know now up front, so that way we can go into the coming weeks with our eye on the prize. Jonah is a story about the mercy and grace and compassion and faithfulness of God. That's true of all of Scripture, though, isn't it? So, secret insider information for you. As you read your Bible, you should always be looking for the mercy and grace and compassion and steadfast faithfulness of God. That's who He is. And the Bible from cover to cover is a story about Him displaying His nature toward people who don't deserve it, towards you and towards me. In spite of all of our wickedness and rebellion and foolishness, which Jonah highlights for us very well. So as we begin this four-week series, be on the lookout for mercy. Be on the lookout for grace. Be on the lookout for God's loving kindness. Rather than trying to discern what the particular type of gourd that grew up over Jonah overnight was in chapter 4. Now this morning I want to draw your attention to a particularly penetrating issue. I want you to take notice of the distinct way the author of our book positions the characters in this text by way of contrasts, comparisons, and ironic surprises. In this text, in chapter 1 especially, we will see a series of contrasts, comparisons, and ironic surprises that are designed to draw our attention 
to the main thrust of the book. They're designed to draw us to engage with Jonah on a personal level. To use Jonah as a sort of a mirror that we hold up in front of ourselves to ask introspective and necessary questions about our own hearts and how closely they align with God's heart. We want to look at Jonah not as a guy who miraculously survives the gastrointestinal system of a whale, but as a man who looks a lot like you and me when push comes to shove and God tells us to do things we don't want to do. So I want us to look at the characters, especially in today's text, in chapter 1, and ask the question, are we more like Jonah or the pagan sailors? Let me say that again. Are you and I more like Jonah, God's prophet, or the pagan sailors? Now, before you instinctively say, well, I want to be like Jonah, covenant member of the community, prophet of God, received the word of the Lord, so on and so forth. I mean, pagan, automatically, that's out, right? I don't want to be like the pagans at all. So pagans, bad, Israelite, good. Uh, This story is going to shock us. Again, a number of ironic surprises that occur in this text that I want to draw your attention to. So don't assume that the label pagan means that we want to be more like Jonah. Let's pay attention closely to who acts more like God in chapter 1 of Jonah. In the end, ultimately, what we're asking is this. God has a compassion, uh, excuse me, a heart of compassion and grace toward people. Do you? God has a heart of compassion and grace towards people. Now, by definition, grace means they don't deserve it. Do you? Let's look at Jonah. Jonah begins, as many prophetic books begin, with a word from the Lord to one of his prophets. In fact, what I'll do is I'll read chapter 1, and then we'll come back and look at Jonah together. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. 
Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Our text begins with a word from God. A word from the Lord to one of his prophets. Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. It's a great city and its evil is great. Call out against it. Now, this might seem somewhat insignificant, but if we're tracking Jonah's response to God, our attention needs to focus here for at least a moment. You see, Jonah is a prophet of the Lord, and we're going to come back to this in a moment because the book doesn't identify him as one. We actually have to go somewhere else in Scripture to discern this information. But Jonah receives a word from God to do something God wants him to do, to go somewhere God wants him to go, to be around people God wants him to be around, and to do something that, frankly, Jonah hates. God's word to Jonah is a hard word. It's a word that requires Jonah to make himself uncomfortable in obedience. It doesn't make sense to Jonah. Those Ninevites... The Ninevites? Okay, just to, in a perspective, Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom under Jeroboam II. We read this in 2 Kings chapter 12. He was far north in the northern kingdom and probably among those in closest proximity to the Ninevites. And so Jonah may have personally known people who were affected by the great wickedness of the Ninevite, Ninevite people. Their behavior would have likely cost him something during the course of his life. He would have been personally impacted by their grotesque violence and wickedness against God's people. And so Jonah is given a word that's hard, go to Nineveh, that doesn't sound particularly thrilling. Tell them to repent, that sounds even worse because I know that you're a forgiving God. I've read Exodus 34 and I don't want them to receive forgiveness and do this thing that doesn't make sense to you. Jonah thinks, I thought we were your people. What's with these Ninevites? They're the worst. Just to put it into perspective, if you don't mind me highlighting it, it would be like being called to go be a missionary to Muslim people on September 12th, 2001. And for some of us, I imagine, it would be the same call on July, what's today, the 10th? July 10th, 2022. Not them, not them, anybody else. Jonah receives a word from the Lord. It's a hard word. It doesn't make sense to him, and he doesn't like it. And so the question that Jonah forces us to ask 
is how do we respond to the word of the Lord? Jonah runs. He runs in the other direction, the total opposite direction. And I wonder if that's how most of us don't respond to God's word as well. Don't make a mistake here. It's easy to think that this is a special thing going on here. Well, after all, Jonah's a prophet, and God spoke to him, perhaps audibly, and he heard God say this to him, or he spoke to him in a dream, perhaps. Numbers 12 tells us that when God speaks to one of his prophets, he does so in dreams and visions. And so perhaps Jonah had this occurrence that caused him to know God's will, and he decided not to do it. We don't have that. This is the New Covenant era, 2022. Of course, God doesn't continue to speak like that. I beg to differ, not in audible words, but this is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Every time you and I sit under its preaching or expose ourselves to reading it and studying it, or listening to someone expound it, or even something as simple as Jim reading John 15, where Jesus commands us to abide in him and love one another, you have received a word from the Lord. Now, how do you respond? Do we respond like Jonah, the Israelite prophet? He ran away. He refused to obey. Sometimes God calls us to go to our enemies. Sometimes God calls us to expose ourselves to difficult situations. Are we only willing to obey when it's easy or when it makes sense to us? Now, I said earlier that the book of Jonah doesn't tell us that he's a prophet. In fact, he's only called by his name, the son of his father, Amity. Um, we have to look elsewhere to discover that he's a prophet. And I think it's interesting that the book does not identify him as a prophet because what the author is doing, he's portraying Jonah as an everyday Israelite. He's just Jonah the Israelite. He's got a dad, lives in a town, he's in Israel, and that's it. That's good enough because the reality is far too many people, both in his day and ours, think that the command to take the word of God to the world is reserved for an elite few. And so uh, Bob the Israelite can read Jonah and go, well, I'm not a prophet, so this has nothing to do with me. Obviously, Jonah was a prophet. He disobeyed, but God's not calling me to do any of those things. The problem is Jonah is not identified as a prophet. He's just Jonah. God's command to be salt and light to the world, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to share the way and the truth and the life with people who are lost in darkness and hopeless without it is given to all his people. Now, of course, prophets received special instruction and did certain particular unique things in that day, just as ministers of the gospel preached the word of God uniquely in corporate worship and so forth. But all of God's people, all of you, are given the task of taking that message to the world, whether it be parents to your children or perhaps even to your parents to your co-workers your communities and to the ends of the earth we exist to declare the glory of extol the glory of god from this place to the end of the earth do you believe that when you join our church jonah is just jonah because he's each of us commissioned by god with a word to be obedient in whatever way god has called him and her to walk in faithful obedience. It's ironic to me that Jonah is willing to prophesy a message of increase and prosperity to his own wicked people in 2 Kings chapter 12, but refuses to declare a message of repentance and forgiveness to other wicked people. 
Did you catch that? If you know the story of Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 12, he is declaring a prophecy of increase of land and prosperity to the Israelites. He's happy to do that in their wickedness. But when somebody else is wicked out there, he doesn't want anything to do with their forgiveness and God's compassion and mercy towards them. There's a bit of ethnocentrism going on in Jonah's heart, I would say. I wonder if this lies within our hearts as well. An increased, a, a willingness to see people that look, look more and more like us walk through these doors. But God, keep, the, keep people that are different from us away. Because we're comfortable here. Because we like our homogeny. Because we're happy with the way things look right now. And if you start bringing, I think back to Reverend Marsh's sermon last Sunday. Sometime in the future, God is going to bring people through these doors. Or put them in the homes next to you. Or put their children in the desk next to your children that look nothing like you. And I'm not even talking about ethnicity. I'm talking about an unidentifiable kind of uh, androgyny that's going to exist in our world because of what's happening with gender fluidity and the rights of people to be whatever they decide they want to be. How are we going to respond to those people when they come through these doors or when they sit at the desk across from you or play on the playground with your children or move into the house next door? Are we going to be like Jonah? Mm, 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 mm. Let's have some more church folks over. We're going to have a church fellowship time at our house, but we don't want anybody that's not like us involved. That's Jonah's attitude. And you notice God's heart from the beginning has been that people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue would be redeemed into a covenant people, a kingdom, one nation of priests under God. And yet Jonah's heart here is so far from that reality. He wants the opposite to be true. And Jonah's name uh, this is, in my opinion, this is worth taking a moment to think about. Jonah's name is one of those fitting names given to a young man at birth. You know, names in the Old Testament were so important. God changed people's names to reflect the reality of their heart. Uh, parents would name their children to declare what they hoped that that child would grow up to be. Some of us have named our children something and discovered it was far more true than we wanted it to be when we first named them. My daughter Abigail was purposely named the, my father's joy. She is the joy and delight of my heart, my only daughter and my firstborn. Our son Henry, whose name means ruler of the home, uh, that's coming home to roost a little bit. Uh, he's adorable, so I don't, I don't say that uh, at his expense. But Jonah's name means dove. Dove. Now, you may think to yourself, well, dove, that's the, like the Holy Spirit, right? I remember at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended like a dove. Maybe it's reflective of Jonah's spirit-like disposition and qualities. Oh, he is, he's ready to obey God. Unfortunately, uh, in immediate context in the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 7, God is rebuking Israel for its foolish senseless rebellion and he says to them you are like a dove silly and senseless in your rebellion Jonah's a silly silly senseless man how fitting but there's more Jonah has a father Jonah's father's name is Amati which means my faithfulness Jonah is the foolish son of his father's faithfulness. 
and that will become more and more evident as we move through this passage and these verses over the coming weeks. When Jonah displays great foolishness, when he responds in ridiculous silliness, when he is contrary to the will of God, his father, God persistently remains faithful to Jonah. Now, I don't know about you, but I act very foolishly sometimes. And in my heart, I rebel against God and his word, his commandments and his law. My heart is set on things below far too often than it is set on things above. And I'm like a dove, but God is faithful. God remains faithful to his children, and there is no changing that. There is neither There is nothing made, neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor things uh, below or things above, nor any other thing, including my own stupidity, that can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So Jonah is like us. He's a dove, and we are too, far too often. But God is always faithful. He's always forgiving, and he always remains covenantally committed to his children. So Jonah can be the dove son of my faithfulness, and it reminds us of our great and merciful God and his disposition toward us. Now, there's a, there's a pattern that exists in Scripture that you'll be familiar with. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Arise and go to Zarephath and be fed there for a season of time. And then in the next verse it says, And so Elijah got up and he went to Zarephath and did as the Lord commanded. Or perhaps in Isaiah chapter 6, God says, who shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. You hear that send, send, arise, arise, go and he goes, do this and they do it. Even the Israelites say this. Now they didn't mean it, but God says, he gives them a list of commands and they said, all that the Lord said we will do. Here in uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, there's a break in this paradigm, and it ought to, I mean, if you're an Israelite reading this, you're shocked, uh, because your mind is just kind of going along, going through the motions, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and Jonah arose, went to, wait a minute, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord? That's shocking. It should be shocking. This is God's covenant child, his prophet, whom he purchased out of, Israel, out of Egypt with a strong right hand, who's been, his sins have been paid for by the blood of sacrifices. He has grown up knowing about and worshiping the one true God. His doctrine is spot on. Look at verse 9. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I know who God is. He heard from God a word, and God says, go, and he said, no. I don't want to. And he goes in the opposite direction. That break ought to shock us. It also ought to cause us to ask ourselves a question about our own hearts. Are we like Jonah? You see, the word is full of commandments to Christians, just like we talked about earlier. Jonah's commandment was get up, go to Nineveh, declare. Yours and mine are put off the old self and put on the new. Give no provision for the flesh. Flee from sexual immorality. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love your wives sacrificially and nurture them with the washing of the water of the word. Submit to your husbands with respect out of reverence for Christ your Savior. 
Obey and honor your parents. Don't be harsh with your children. Honor those in governing authorities and forgive those who have hurt you. The list goes on and on. You and I have received a word from the Lord, my friends. No doubt, just as clearly as Jonah. Yet how often do our hearts run from God's word, run from obedience, run from God's will. We pursue idols rather than worship God. We feed our flesh by watching immoral things, disgusting things that we know we shouldn't watch, and we excuse it under the guise of Christian liberty. We stoke the fire of our own pride. We glance over our neighbor's fences in covetousness. We exalt ourselves by the strength of our own back. We're harsh with our children, graceless with our wives, stubborn against our husbands, and unwilling to forgive those who have hurt us. We run from God's word rather than obey it. We're Jonah. I think these are some helpful diagnostic questions that we can ask ourselves. Do I love God's grace and mercy for me, but I'm unwilling to display grace and mercy towards people who hurt me? If you do, if that's true, then you're like Jonah. Do I love God's plan for my salvation? But I wish his plan regarding other aspects of my life were different. In other words, I love Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. Then you're like Jonah. We run away from God's word, don't we? I've said this even recently. The Christian life is very simple. It's not easy. But it's very simple. It all comes down to this. The end of the matter is this. Fear God and obey his commandments. Now, you think to yourself, I think to myself, I've been trying pretty hard and it doesn't always come out that way, does it? Once again, our self-exaltation and refusal to humble ourselves before the spirit of God means that we don't submit ourselves to his work in our lives. God has promised that he will give us a new heart, promised that he will put his spirit within us when he cleanses us from all our uncleanness, and he will cause us to walk in his statutes and obey his commandments. But when we falter and we fail and we're beset by sin and we're stuck in patterns of sinful behavior, rather than falling to our knees and crying out for forgiveness, which, by the way, next week we're going to realize it takes Jonah to be in the digestive tract of a fish before he does this. We're the same way. Rather than falling to our knees, we, we stubbornly stand up straight and try to fix it ourselves. Or we take a nap. That's what Jonah does. He settled in his sin. He said, I'm, I'm done. I'm not even playing this game anymore. I'm not going to obey God. I'm going to take a nap. I know that some of you know what I mean about this. You decide that I'm not going to repent of this sin. You decide that I'm going to live in this sin. And all of a sudden you think, I'm just going to take a rest. If I sleep for a little bit, my conscience won't be bothering me anymore. I can wake up and go back to my disobedience. Just like Jonah. Now I want you to notice that Jonah's descent away from God is fascinating. I'm sure you know... If you don't, we're gonna, I'm going to tell you, 
Jonah's here, and Nineveh's here, and Tarshish is somewhere over here. And so we think in geographic terms, God has told Jonah to go to New York City, and he's gone to San Diego, right? And so we have this idea in our mind that Jonah's escape is geographic. Jonah is trying to escape from the presence of the Lord by leaving in the opposite direction of Nineveh. If I don't go to Nineveh, then they won't hear the word of repentance. I think there's something far more significant about Jonah's departure from God's will than that. Notice with me, look at verse 3 and 5, and I'm going to emphasize this so you see it. (coughs) Jonah rose, as God told him, and to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into the ship. Verse 5, the sailors now are hurling the cargo that was in the ship into the sea, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah's departure from God is far more spiritual than it is geographic. Now, there's a geographic component. Jonah was an Israelite who lived in the promised land, and he believed that in order to escape the nagging word of God and the possibility of having to obey it, he should separate himself from the covenant community. Leave Israel, go to the furthest reaches. It's not, hard, it's not hurting that it's way away from Tarshish, or excuse me, from Nineveh, but go way over here, and I won't have to hear the word of the Lord because his word is prevalent where his people are. So I need to get away from his people. Get away from Israel, I'm away from the word from the Lord. Nobody there is going to question me. They're not going to know. I can rebrand myself when I get there, be whoever I want. I'm going to go to Tarshish, and they're going to say, where are you from? And I'm going to say, Ethiopia. No one will ask me. What are you doing here? No one will ask me. It won't matter. I can lie. I'm away. Now, how often is that the case? I, I want to speak for a second to our young, our children right now, especially those who are in their, coming into high school, in high school, and so forth. Many of you are looking at the door of your parents' house and the door of this church as an opportunity to escape from the word of the Lord. I've heard it. I know what it requires. I've been taught. My parents have faithfully taught me what it means to fear God and obey his commandments. I hear it preached and prayed and proclaimed here at this church week after week. I know what it means. But when I walk out those doors, when I graduate high school, when I get married, whatever it is, I can escape. And the way you do that is by walking away from the covenant community. That's the number one way that young people begin to live autonomously away from the Lord, is they leave the covenant community because they know, because you know that in this place, your unrighteous thoughts will be challenged and your sinful disposition will be confronted and the only way and truth and life will be presented to you. And that challenges your flesh. The book of Hebrews warns you, young people, that to walk through those doors away from the covenant community in order to avoid confronting Jesus as Lord and Savior is tantamount to trampling him under your feet, and there is no redemption for you. Don't be like Jonah. Children, hear God's word and submit to it and obey it and trust that he is faithful and good and true to you as his covenant child. Even Jonah ends up in the sea in a raging storm and ought to die, and God rescues him. And Jonah continues to rebel against God, and he provides shade for him. Because Jonah is senseless and silly, yet his father in heaven is faithful. 
So I encourage you children, don't be like Jonah. Don't view those doors as an escape from God. Read Psalm 139. I can go to the heights of heaven, and God, you're there. I can go down to the grave, and you'll still find me there. We often read that text like David's celebrating the fact that he's no, there's nowhere he can go where God isn't present. I think he's kind of lamenting the fact that he can't get away from God. And neither can you. You think God isn't in Tarshish? He's already in Nineveh waiting for Jonah to get there. Jonah descends, 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 descends. He's going down, going down, going down. In other words, Jonah, as he moves away from God's will, is moving closer and closer to death, to spiritual deadness. This word going down is used over and over again in the Psalms to describe the fact that people go down into the pit of death. Running away from God, obedience to him, and trust in him is running toward death. Don't miss that. Jonah runs away. He gets a word from the Lord, and he runs away. The pagan sailors, on the other hand, the other characters I want us to take a minute to compare ourselves to, they recognize what's going on, and they respond in a unique way, a surprising way, an ironic way, considering who they are. Now, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and these mariners, who ought to be pretty confident in bad weather, become fearful, it tells us. Uh, the ship threatened to break up, and they all cried out to their God because they were afraid, it says in verse 5. Then they discover that the, that the storm is a result of God, the one who made heaven and earth, and his anger at his servant Jonah. And now in verse 10, they're exceedingly afraid because they start to get the picture, don't they? They start to get the picture that God alone is God, and that when he wants to get your attention, he gets it, and if you don't obey him, he comes after you. Now, I'm not trying to paint God as some uh, wicked uh, horror movie monster, but rather as the stubbornly persistent, pursuing, loving God who's disciplining Jonah in his unfaithfulness because he remains faithful to Jonah. And these sailors start to figure it out. And in fact, by the time they throw Jonah into the sea, it tells us now that their fear is oriented rightly. They were afraid of the water. Now they're afraid of God. Now the men feared the Lord exceedingly reverentially, and they offer sacrifices and make vows to him. Their fear turns from being terrified of the God of the sea to being worshipful of the God who made the sea. We're more like Jonah. Jonah's asleep. If God's going to kill me, he's going to kill me. Throw me into the water, and that'll be it for me. I'm going to escape this command one way or another. But these pagan sailors begin to get a grasp of who God is. They see him, they're confronted with God, and they respond in fearful worship. Jonah's rebellion and fear, uh, his running away from God, is absolutely ridiculous. It's one of, one of the most ironic statements in the book of Jonah is that Jonah goes on to the sea in order to flee from God. And when they say, who are you? He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea. Doesn't that seem foolish? Doesn't that seem silly to you? You know the God who made the sea, and yet here you are running away from him. Where? On the sea. But that's the way we respond to things, isn't it, in our hearts. I know the God who is able to do far more exceedingly than anything I could ask or imagine. 
And yet I don't pray to him to help me in my times of greatest need. I try to do it myself. I know the God whose heart is disposed towards mercy and grace and forgiveness of sinners, yet I'm not willing to show mercy or grace or forgiveness towards people that have hurt me because it might cost me too much. I know the God who provides everything I need. He feeds the sparrows. The deer do not give birth in the forest without him present. And yet I'm unwilling to trust him with my life, with my time, with my financial security, with my children's hearts. I think that my anger and my severity and my rules will win my children to Christ. I don't trust the gospel to do that. I need to do that. I don't trust that God will store up for me treasure that I will be sustained in this life. Instead, rather, I cannot give to the church. I cannot give to support worldwide missions. I cannot give sacrificially to people in need because I need to take care of myself first. Aren't you fascinated that politicians can raise a couple million dollars in a month to support ungodly, wicked causes that are rooted in death and destruction and division, and yet churches struggle to support missionaries overseas or build sanctuaries for worship, or there are people among us who are going to struggle to have dinner tonight? We ought to be embarrassed when the world outstrips, outpaces the church in acting like Christ. And caring about the marginalized and the outcast and the downtrodden and the poor. And that's what we see here in this contrast between Jonah and these, and these uh, sailors, don't we? Jonah is so unconcerned with life that he refuses to go to Nineveh to see them rescued from certain doom. He puts the sailors' lives in jeopardy by letting them take him onto the sea where God's going to chase him down. And then he has no regard for his own life at the very end when he says, just throw me in, I'm done. Yet, what do we read about these sailors? Their immediate concern is for life. They cried out to God, to their gods. They invite Jonah to call out to his God that lives may not perish. These sailors are more reflective of God's character in the beginning of the book than Jonah is. God says, go to Nineveh because their evil is great and I want them to repent so I can save them. These sailors say, we repent, do whatever, call out to your God so that way we might not perish. Do you notice also that, the, that the, the, the sailors here use the same language God uses in the beginning? God says, arise and cry out, call out against Nineveh, verse 2. The exact same phrase in verse uh, 6. Arise, call out to your God. These sailors are so reflective over and over again of God's character far more than Jonah is. They have a concern for life. They don't want to see their lives or Jonah's lost. How interesting is this? Jonah says, they say in verse 11, what do you want us to do that the sea may quiet down? And he says, throw me in and the sea will quiet down. And they say, no, we don't want to see you die. We're going to work hard. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land. Do you see that? They're concerned for Jonah's life. He's the one that brought this great evil upon them, and they would rather fight against the storm than see this man who might be innocent, verse 14, don't hold us guilty of innocent blood. They would rather die, work hard rowing back to shore, than see someone who might be innocent perish. That's shocking. What a contrast. Jonah, on the other hand, couldn't care less if there are a thousand righteous in Nineveh, let them all burn. 
how do we respond to God's grace and mercy? What's our heart like when it comes to God's disposition towards people who don't deserve his kindness? That's the definition of grace. And if you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, that means that when God sent his son to die for the sins of his people on the cross, we didn't deserve it either. And yet we remain hard-hearted and calloused and closed off and Jonah-like against people who hurt us people that we don't like, and we can excuse ourselves uh, from sunup to sundown. Oh, well, they're not Christians. You know, the Bible's principal concern is that I be merciful and kind to the body of faith. So I re- that's where I really focus. I'm really nice to other Christians. But uh, if they're not a Christian, you know, nothing to do with them. Or we amplify in our hearts and our minds and our conversations with other people the pain that we've endured. Now, I'm not minimizing real pain, real trauma, real difficulty, but we often amplify those things in order to excuse ourselves from the biblical obligation to be forgiving as you have been forgiven. You know, when Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he says, and if you don't forgive others their sins, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you yours. He's certainly not saying that your forgiveness is conditional upon you forgiving other people. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that forgiven people are forgiving people. And if you're not forgiving, you ought to ask yourself the question, am I forgiven? And this is Jonah's problem. And it's the problem that so many Christians hold on to. We cling to our bitterness and our anger and our resentment against other people. And we're far more like Jonah than we are like the pagan sailors who care about life who reflect God's mercy and character, who even call out to Jonah, arise and cry out to your God, and he's not willing to do it. Who among us has not heard a sermon with an application or an illustration that applied directly and specifically and uniquely to you, yet we walk out these doors and act like nothing was said that connects to our lives? Because we don't want to apply what it means to listen to God's word and obey. These sailors, uh, I want to point this out to you. uh, I'm aware of the time. I want to point this out. Look at verse 14 with me. Jonah thinks his theology is tight. His doctrine is spot on. I know who God is. I'm one of his covenant people. He made the heavens. He's the Lord of the sea and the land. And yet Jonah shows no indication that he's interested in worshiping this God and obeying this God or believing that the mercy of God is for all people. What do these pagan sailors say in verse 14? O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, put yourself in the shoes of a 7th century Jew. And all you hear is Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Do you hear it? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. O Lord, you have done as it pleased you. In other words, what a shame 
that these unbelieving pagan sailors practice biblical liturgy and worship far better than Jonah does in his failure to pray and to obey. What a challenge to us that there are people out there in the world who look far more like Christians than those who profess to be Christians. And there are people among us who look far more like worldlings than people out there who have nothing to do with God. Did you hear the story about the man that got pulled over on his way home from work one night? He's driving home, and the police officer pulls him over, and he thinks, oh, goodness, I, I don't know what I did. I didn't see a red light, and puts the car in park, reaches for his wallet, and he hears over the speaker of the police car, get out of your car with your hands up. His eyes get real big. He says, put your hands out the driver's side window, open the door, get out, and lay on the ground. So he's terrified. He starts shaking, and he opens the door of his car and gets out and lays down on the ground, police officer comes over and is covering him with his pistol. Another police officer runs over and handcuffs him behind his back. He says, you're under arrest for stealing this vehicle. He says, stealing this vehicle? This is my car. He said, officer, I don't, there's been a misunderstanding. This is my car. You can look at my wallet. It's in the seat in there, in the passenger seat. The registration's in the glove box. This is my vehicle. And so the one officer continues to cover him with his pistol, and the other one goes in and checks and confirms that it's indeed this man's car. And he said, sir, there's been a terrible misunderstanding. We sincerely apologize. They take the handcuffs off, help the man to his feet, and say, well, you have yourself a good night. And he goes, whoa, 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 hold on a second. What just happened? How in the world can you do that and just walk away like that? Why did you think that I stole this car? And the one officer says to him, well, to be honest, you've got a bumper sticker on the back left here that says, Jesus is my co-pilot. And over here on your window, you've got your church logo sticker. And back on this other bumper, you say, put the Ten Commandments back in the court system and in our schools. And right here says, prayer is powerful. But your road rage and the fact that you were flipping people off and cussing and honking your horn and cutting people off on the road, I couldn't believe the person with those bumper stickers was driving this vehicle. I thought it must have been stolen. Jonah's confession of faith said one thing, but his life said another. These pagan sailors end up confessing their faith. In fact, they worship God, they offer sacrifices and make vows before the Lord because they become aware of his greatness and his power and his majesty. And so my question for you is, does your confession of faith match your life? Or are you more like Jonah or more like the pagan sailors? God is so kind, he continues to be faithful to Jonah. Verse 17 is actually chapter 2, verse 1 in, our, in the Hebrew Bible, and so we'll save it for next week when we look at chapter 2 together. But I do want you to note this, and this is where we'll end today. Jonah's thrown into the sea, deservingly. The sea calms down, and the sailors are saved. Jonah should be going to the depths of a watery grave, where he's never heard or seen from again, to be eaten by the fishes and spread throughout the earth's oceans for all eternity. But what do we read in verse 17? Jonah, who's silly and senseless, foolish and rebellious and disobedient, yet he is the son of his faithful father. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. God provided his rescue. God provided a safe haven in which Jonah could repent and cry out for forgiveness. God provided 
safety for Jonah in spite of his wicked rebellion. And he does the same for you and me. Now, I know that Jesus will reflect on Jonah being in the, in the belly of the fish for three days as emblematic of his time in the earth for three days. But really, I don't want you to leave here without noticing that God has provided a greater haven for you and for me to turn to for forgiveness and salvation. Jonah is cast into the sea of God's wrath, and a fish swallows him up where he can pray and repent and be restored to new life. It's almost like he's birthed again when the fish vomits him out on the land. And God has provided for us a great Savior as we're hovering over the waters of God's righteous wrath against our sin. God has provided a great Savior in whom we take refuge, in whom we repent and believe and cry out to God for forgiveness, and we receive the same new life in him that Jonah gets on the other side of the fish. Don't miss that. God is faithful and he provides a way, even when we've given up and we've rebelled and we've been faithless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cry out to you this morning for forgiveness. Lord, uh, this text has been hard for me and I'm sure for many. It challenges us as we consider whether or not the words of our mouths align with the meditations of our hearts. Our confessions are airtight, and we love our doctrine, and we know the commandments of your word, but sometimes our hearts run away, and Lord, we are running towards spiritual deadness when we do. Would you forgive? Would you grant repentance? Would you offer forgiveness? And would you rescue us from ourselves? Help us to be more like the pagan sailors with hearts filled with mercy and compassion toward other people rather than only looking out for our own interests. Help us to be more like the pagan sailors who offer worship and make vows out of reverential fear of the God who made them and who rules over the land and the sea. Lord, help us to see ourselves in Jonah and to turn towards Christ, who is our only hope in life and death. Thank you that this chapter does not end without a word of encouragement and assurance, but rather we see that you continue to provide a way of salvation for your people, that we might be rescued from the sea of your wrath. Thank you that you are faithful even when we are silly and senseless. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.